Other students might be motivated to sit there texting their friends. And though that's not what we want, and we might say they're not motivated, well, that student is motivated. They're just not motivated in the direction in which we would want them to be motivated. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Rosie the Riveting, the podcast, the place where busy social studies teachers come to share their best lessons. Motivation. It's one of the great puzzles in education, and it's a puzzle that has multiple answers. The keys to solving it are as endless as the number of personalities in the world. And once we find one motivating strategy that works, we know that it definitely isn't going to work for all. It always fascinates me how the question that creates a heated discussion in one class barely fizzles in another. One student gets excited for the new project that another student finds completely boring. The strategies that we used last year to encourage our struggling student doesn't encourage our new struggling student this year. The answer to this question of how do we motivate students changes from student to student, class to class, and year to year, which is all the more reason that we should study motivation and really build up a toolbox so that we can be successful in motivating our students. In this podcast, I interview Dr. Sandra Diemer, professor of education at Millersville University in Pennsylvania. Dr. Diemer has spent much of her career researching motivation, and her latest book, Reflections on How Educators Use Motivational Theories in Educational Psychology, gives examples of motivating educators in all subjects at the secondary level. I was privileged to be one of the teachers interviewed in this book. Dr. Diemer was also a great motivator for me when I was a sophomore in college, and I went through what I'll call a mid-college crisis when I was completely convinced that I did not want to teach. It was through her guidance that I kept with it, and I'm very glad that I did. I've had numerous former students who have also taken her classes, and they've all described her as an amazing educator. So when I wanted to do an interview on motivating students in our classrooms, she was a pretty obvious choice to turn to. I'm very thankful she was willing to take her time to be interviewed. One final thing before we get started, after the interview, please check out the blog post that accompanies this podcast. Dr. Diemer sent me additional resources on motivation that you can check out. There's also the Through Rosy Colored Glasses segment where I give you my three favorite things that I took away from the podcast. So without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Dr. Sandra Diemer and our discussion on motivation in the classroom. Well, thank you so much uh, for being with us today, Sandy. I'm very excited to hear what you have to say about motivation. Yes, looking forward to talking with you more. All right. So I guess we should probably start off with just a working definition of what motivation is or what that means to you. Well, when I hear the term motivation, you know, I often do think about the textbook definition because, of course, I teach that in my classes, which, you know, typically is sort of the process involved as we engage in a task. Oftentimes you'll hear people talk about goal-directed behavior when they refer to motivation. But that's a textbook definition. I think actually when I and others hear motivation and we think about it both within the classroom and beyond, we probably create a vision in our head of a certain type of person doing a certain type of activity, right? Um, so I think oftentimes when I define it, I, I go to that vision more. You know, somebody who is focused on a task, engaged, but not engaged in a way where they're just all taking it in. They're also questioning it. They're also a person who is going to take on the challenge even if they fail. Uh, and that's hard for many of us to do, our students and often us as adults. So I think I have a, a quite complex definition of it, um, although I can appreciate those textbook definitions as well. So then do you think, is there a difference between, say, when my students are motivated and when my students are engaged, or are they just two words that cover the same topic? 
Hmm, that's a great question. And I think that is one that has been debated in the field. (laughs) So I'm glad that you've sort of brought it to the forefront because oftentimes we infer students being motivated from them being engaged. So I do think they are interrelated, but I don't think they are the exact same. I don't know if I want to say behavior or action, Uh, Because I do think students can be engaged in what they're doing. However, they can be motivated in very different ways. Sometimes students can be engaged in a task in the classroom because they want to do better than the person they're sitting next to, or they want to please the teacher. And people would say they're motivated, they are engaged, right? Other times students are engaged and they're engaged in the way that I was just describing sort of motivation in my vision. (laughs) You know, that person who is involved, goal-directed, challenged, but also willing to raise questions, is not afraid to perhaps ask a question that might infer they don't know everything. They're not as concerned about maybe what they look like next to their peer or whether the teacher even thinks they're the brightest in the room. So I think we just need to be careful when we are seeing students who are engaged to ask the next question, which would be, okay, they're engaged. How are they motivated? Hmm. That's so interesting. And like, there's another question for me. I'm just trying to think exactly what it is at this point. So, and this is because in your book, and I went back to your book, The Reflections on How Educators Use Motivational Theories, and I noticed that there was the table where you cited a table, I believe it was Anderson, that showed a number of characteristics from supporting, understanding of material, building and maintaining rapport, mm-hmm. and managing your classroom. And so, and one of the things was that middle column, the building and maintaining rapport, seemed to be so important. At least it really jumped out to me as very important. It sounds like that's what you're kind of saying when it looks at motivation versus engagement, like we need to understand just that individual student. Like we really can't wrap motivation into just a box and expect it to work. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. I also think we have to avoid qualifying students as being motivated or being not motivated because really every student is motivated in some way. Some students are motivated to do the task that we ask of them or that we would expect them to do in a certain type of classroom. Other students might be motivated to sit there texting their friends. And though that's not what we want, and we might say they're not motivated, well, that student is motivated. They're just not motivated in the direction in which we would want them to be motivated. When I think about motivating students, like how to get better at doing that, I picture those students who are texting in class or I picture those students who don't care. Maybe they have external issues that they're they're thinking about. They like the subject one day, not the next. And those are the students that I focus on saying, oh, I'm going to motivate my students more. But I always worry. And I know we hear this a lot in education that sometimes we're forgetting kind of those top students, the higher achieving students when we teach. And I worry that we do that too with motivation. Is there a way or a way that we can focus on those students who are already motivated to do really well and to motivate them more so that we can perhaps teach them more, whether it be about life or help them academically Mm -hmm. or reach their full potential? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It absolutely does make sense. And I do think this is a concern nationwide, um, especially with some of our um, assessment movements that have really focused on moving oftentimes our lower level students or our students sort of in the middle 
uh, to higher levels. And then what happens with those students who, well, in Pennsylvania, we would call they're already at the advanced level of proficiency, but we do have a requirement to move them on as well. So I would look at that and say, it's not about motivating those high achievers more. It's about motivating them in different ways. So one thing that we have to be careful of is oftentimes high achievers can be very performance focused. And what that means is that they are focusing on performance goals. Performance goals are defined as being concerned about how you are doing compared to others, being very competitive in your approaches to learning, which would entail, I need to get the highest grade. I need to break the curve. I need to raise my hand the fastest. I hope the teacher calls on me. Um, And again, all those things are not necessarily bad in the classroom for us as teachers. We like those students who are raising their hands and trying to be the best in the class. The problem is oftentimes those high achievers who can be very performance goal focused will not take academic risks beyond their initial capabilities. So that would be the first thing I'd want to know about those students. Are they motivated in that way? Because again, I want to influence their motivation, but I might want to change their focus to something called being mastery goal focused, which is where you you still are focused on doing very well, but you're focused on looking at your own progress, focused on learning from mistakes, focused on seeking out new information. So that is something that I really think we we need to consider with high achievers, um, especially, you know, high achievers in high school sometimes have difficulty making the transition to college, um, not in large numbers. Of course, our at-risk students have more of a difficulty with the transition, but that is something that I really want to make sure that that even the student himself or herself understands the differences between those two different types of uh, focuses in the classroom. And so, Ellen, there's two things in there that I loved in the first chapter of your book, I actually had two mm-hmm. questions about it, so I don't even know which one to start with. But yeah. I think we'll start with the risk, because um, you had mentioned in there about learning to take risks and that learning to take risks is a motivation to learn. You know, what, what do you mean by that? And you know, how can we effectively use risk as a motivator in classes? Mm-hmm. Mm. I'm, I'm shaking my head. You can't really see me because it's a podcast. <laughs> this is very difficult. And, you know, when I wrote that book, I was so focused on how do teachers do that? And I interviewed teachers like yourself, Jenna, uh, and I felt like I learned a lot, but I don't feel like I really got the answer. And the research shows that, too. It is very difficult in classrooms to get students to take risks. Um, One, they are public forums. You are on display. Uh, When we hit the middle school and the high school classroom, right, we have adolescence going on. Students become very focused on themselves. How do they compare? I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to look dumb. I don't want to look too smart, right? I don't want to be the teacher's pet. Um, Interestingly enough, when we are thinking about encouraging risk in the classroom, I always say I look at a good elementary teacher's classroom, perhaps even a kindergarten class. And I think I write about that in the prologue Mm -hmm. to the book. Um, Because younger children often will take those risks naturally. And there's been a lot written that perhaps it is something about the way that we structure our classrooms, that it almost takes that risk-taking behavior out of kids. Um, But I think if we think about how we structure our classrooms, then we can think about risk. 
So in, in the book, and you probably remember this, especially if the book is sitting in front of you, Jenna, mm-hmm. I talk about that target framework. Um, that was not, that framework was not designed by me. I need to give other folks credit for that. It was uh, Carol Ames in 1992 who really articulated that framework. Um, but it is something that I'm guided by. I, it's something I talk to uh, in-service and pre-service teacher candidates about. Um, we need to think about the task we use in the classroom, the authority structure, the recognition, the grouping, the evaluation, the time. It has to be done holistically if we want to get students to take risks. That's so interesting because when you also talked about in the book, like I said, about the mastery of tasks, Mm -hmm. and I feel like we're seeing a big move in education towards that with things like project-based learning. Mm -hmm. Um, I do something in my classroom called 20% time, which is probably very similar where they can work on whatever they want um, within a very, you know, not not a very, it's very flexible framework. It has to do with history and they have to produce something. That's it. And so, and the idea of it is to let them explore, to let them take a risk and to also try and master something. Um, would okay. you, you know, what practical tips would you give for a teacher who's trying to work that to pull students away from that that a that external motivator of a grade? Like that, you know, it's not there in the twenty percent time. There is a small mm-hmm. grade attached to it, but you know, it's kind of one of those. As long as you complete it, you pretty much get the grade. You know, because you've taken that risk. Like, but then you get the students who are like, oh well, if I'm going to get the grade. Why do I need to put in a ton of work? You know, so you know how right. how what are some practical tips te- teachers could use who are moving into those types of learning when that that motivator of a grade is gone? Right. Well, it's interesting because I think your example is a very good one, and it represents both an example of how to focus on those mastery goals, but also the struggle. Right. You did attach a grade to it. One thing we have to remember: anytime we have any type of evaluation be it a grade, be it points, be it our feedback as a teacher, that's an evaluation component that is going to get students to focus on performance goals unless it exists within the context of perhaps giving them choice. So what you just talked about with your 20% time, that combines those elements of the target framework. So yes, there's an evaluation component, right? They get this grade. However, you're giving them choice about what they're doing. So oftentimes I say to, to teachers in terms of having students take risks, choice is a big motivator for mastery goals. Um, giving students choice, whether it's the assignment and how they can share their ideas, whether it's on the exam, you know, commonplace, give them choice of essays, give them choice of terms, which ones do they want to define? Perhaps they have to do five of ten but they are able to choose the five. Um, I do something with my exams that might be quite different and quite challenging to do in a middle school or high school classroom. I actually have my students complete study guides in small groups, working together, talking about the content, and then I allow my students to use those study guides because I say to them, you are not going to have to spit back this information to anybody. You need to know it and learn it. It's not like you're ever going to be in a quiz-like environment. And for my students taking it, it's like, it's not like somebody in an interview is going to say to them, what is Piaget's second level of development? That's just not going to happen, right? But instead, they need to be able to use Piaget's theory of development to talk about how to create appropriate classrooms for students. And I, I think that's true of a lot of content that we teach in school, whether it's in higher ed or in middle school or high school. That's very interesting. And a perfect segue into my next question, which is, 
so you teach educational psychology um, to undergrads and grads. And so these are people, at least the undergrads, who are the upcoming teachers. You know, within the next couple of years, they're going to be our coworkers, the people that we're working next to. What are some of the ideas for motivating students that you have heard coming from them that you think would be beneficial for us to take note of now that are perhaps different than the way that we think of motivation today? Let me just clarify. So you mean ideas I get from my own students here at Millersville? Yeah. So like, uh, you know, as you talk about motivation in your educational psychology Mm -hmm. class, like what are some things that they think as people who are recently out of high school and then coming into the teaching workforce that they think they would use to motivate their future students that you are that you're like, that's a great idea. I wish teachers were doing that now. Okay. Okay. Now I understand. Well, I do think one thing that really can be motivating to students at all level is to utilize the social relationships in the classroom. You know, oftentimes we put students in, you know, classrooms, they sit at desks, they listen to a very long lecture that we just know from a lot of research does not hold their attention very long. I mean, in in fact, we know even as adults, we can probably focus in on a lecture for about 15 minutes at the most. I mean, that's a a high estimate there. So I do think sometimes having students talk in small groups is, you know, enjoyable and gets them to often take those academic risks. For example, asking questions. Many students are more comfortable asking questions in a small group rather than in a whole group. So I see this in my undergrad classes and always get favorable feedback about how I use small groups in the class. I do also think this helps them develop the confidence to then share in the large class as well, because you ultimately do want students to be comfortable doing that as well. So I I really think I almost call it the social energy of a classroom. Um, If you can really get to know your students and utilize that social energy through small groups, parent shares, even a whole class discussion, that can be really helpful in, in getting them to focus on the learning rather than just the grade or the performance. And so what are some of the things you've, you know, you've done research in motivation in each subject area. You know, what are some of the most motivating factors that you've found for social studies? And that's not to like go back to my interview in any way, shape or form, right. but just, you know, because I don't want to do that, but uh, just to, you know, I mean, just, just in social studies in general, what are some ways that we can specifically motivate in that subject area? This is going to tie into your previous question because oftentimes our social study teacher ed candidates, some are becoming teachers in that area because they had very motivating, interesting, engaging teachers. Others say, oh my gosh, it was so boring and I'm going to be better than that, right? And now we know it's hard to be better than that. It's, it's hard to be a great teacher. Um, they will talk about how the social studies class was lecture-based. It was dates and battles and all the men who were involved in those <laughs> battles. So Oftentimes, when I think about what to do, I think about what my students say does not work, which is all those things I've just said. So many of them, when they're talking about very favorable memories from social studies classrooms and even ones that I've observed when I work with our student teachers, they will talk about really getting engaged in projects. So, yes, they still need to know those dates and the battles and the people who were involved, but they're now going to construct uh, whether it be you know a timeline or they're going to do some type of presentation, perhaps using technology, uh, that is what gets them engaged in social studies. And ultimately, that's what they remember. 
because those are the stories they're sharing with me here at Millersville. Very cool. What, and to go to the freshman inquiry course, mm-hmm. so you teach or did teach a freshman inquiry course mm-hmm. called What Turns You On. So how can we learn what motivates us as individuals? And then how can we in turn use that to engage our students? Mm, that That's really a great question. Because I do think for many teachers, we have not really thought about what motivates us. And I'm including myself too, when I say many teachers. Uh, I was definitely a very performance goal focused person all the way through grad school until I finally had a professor in graduate school who made me think about my own motivation and how I was tackling tasks. Basically, I was avoiding risks. You know, I I was stressing myself out to get the best grade, you know, to be competitive in these doctoral classes. Uh, But I was stopping myself. I was inhibiting myself. So I do think you can take these surveys that are out there, you know, online. Uh, The people out of Michigan have a great one that I've used before. I think it's mentioned in my book um, so that you can understand your focus in terms of these achievement goals that I've mentioned, the performance and the mastery. So when we really think about what motivates us, I think then we can start, you know, being better for our students. So knowing that I do still have some of that competitive performance goal focus as part of myself, uh, but I know in the classroom that's not the healthiest for all students or even for me as their teacher. So I constantly am aware of that. So then I can create that classroom that's comfortable for all the students. But I do think from workshops I've done, once I start talking to teachers about the complexity of motivation, many of them understand that. It just needs to be brought to the forefront. The idea of of how their motivation impacts their students' motivation, you mean? Yes. Yes. Well, and I also think we know when we go to conferences or workshops, when we are talked at, right, for a long period of time, and it's not a very engaging speaker, we get bored. So it should not be a surprise that our students get bored as well. And I, I have seen so many teachers who recognize this and they respond to their students. You know, they know when maybe they needed to do a little bit of direct instruction to set them up for the small group task. They know when it's enough and they now need to break them up into these small groups, let them chat among themselves. They're going to monitor the small groups. It's not like the teacher's not heavily involved. But once they make that switch, right, they get the students back because they're not just listening to that lecture. So, you know, we work with a lot of great teachers out here uh, around surrounding Millersville. And I really do think because a lot of the work being done both in the motivation field, but also the brain-based research, uh, that teachers really recognize the need for activity in the classroom and movement in the classroom. And that all feeds into motivation. Are there any resources that you would suggest um, any teacher looking to um include more risk in their classroom or just learn more about motivation that you would suggest? Well, I do think right now a very hot topic, and she's just a great, great researcher, uh, the mindset work being done by Carol Dweck. And she has a great website and a blog that goes along with that. Uh, The idea of mindset really relates to what I've been talking about with these different goals. So she talks about it with a growth versus a fixed mindset. The growth mindset being uh, that is when, as individuals, we are focused on those mastery goals that I talked about. So that is some current stuff that is out there. Interestingly enough, Carol Dweck's work started decades ago. 
it has just sort of been revised, reinvigorated with some of the outreach that she is engaged in. And it is now sort of under this domain of mindset. Uh, so I think that is great work to look at. Awesome. Is there anything that you feel that we've missed? Anything that any middle high school social studies teacher would benefit from knowing before we close? Well, I, I think this is really hard, right? To truly motivate students in an optimal way is very difficult. And I would say that for me in higher ed, and I know I certainly do not have all the constraints, the standards, right? The assessment anchors, all those elements that often make it very difficult for very good teachers to motivate all their students. It is a very hard task. I always say to my students in ed psych, you know, motivation to motivate students truly encompasses every element that we teach you about in ed psych. Because if you're going to motivate students, you need to get to know them. You need to know their developmental level. You need to know their views on intelligence. You need to know sort of their social connections, right? You need to know their family background. You need to know their community background. And I could go on and on. It is a very challenging task. And I will say I'm amazed, again, by the teachers that we work with here at Millersville, the ones I know in my own community, um, the ones I work with that are alum of Millersville, to see what teachers are doing, because I think they're doing an amazing job out there. And, and some days they might not feel like they've motivated all students to the best of their ability, but that does not stop them. They keep trying. And I think that's just wonderful. And the work that's being done with technology now just amazes me. And that's an area I'm hoping to grow in to think about how we can use those technological tools to engage, motivate students. So there, there are a lot of good models out there, but please know it's a very challenging task. And that's a great way to end you know, trying to motivate the teachers who are listening <laughs> to, yeah. to give them a little boost up, a little encouragement. So thank you so much for being with us today. It was a pleasure to have you. It was a pleasure to be interviewed by you, Jenna. Take care. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it on iTunes. It helps others find us. For more lesson plan ideas and resources, please check out rosytheriveting.com. Rosie the Riveting is produced by Seven Side Media.